This episode is sponsored by ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP and download the free ZocDoc app to search for a top-rated doctor today. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast fighting the power, fighting the powers that be. Today's topic is protest songs. I'm Mark Lintemeyer, contemplating the difficult decision of whether to be a lousy scab or a man. My name is Lily Lewis. I'm based outside of New Orleans in the country of Bush, Louisiana. I'm a singer, songwriter, composer, run a record label called Louisiana Red Hot Records. I'm Rod Pikeot. I'm a singer, songwriter from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, originally from the great state of Maine. I've been putting records out for about 20 years. I have two published books of poetry and a published book of short stories, so I'm also moving into the literary world as well. I'm Tyler, podcast engineer for Mark and all of his associated shows, rapper, producer, etc., etc. And you just started a podcast. What's that called? Indy. Uh, yeah, the Pixel Box podcast. Episode four is recorded, recording every Friday. So yes, with a often political bent, and then Rod and Lily are both folks that, along with Tyler, have been on my Naked League Examine Music podcast, and I knew that you had some experience writing socially aware songs. I don't know if they count as protest songs exactly. This is just always a topic that I've been kind of cynical about, and I feel like that that is just really something left over from my Gen X childhood in the fact that I grew up in a suburban, there's something vaguely wrong here, but not focused enough for me to sympathize with all the Power to the People songs or whatever, things that were sort of left over from the hippie days from the late 60s and the early 70s that had filtered through my narrow window to me. So I'm happy to have you folks so we can introduce each other and the audience to what protest songs mean from wherever we're coming from. I think I share a little bit of your skepticism about protest songs. And I think that's because like, I'm a musician. I mean, when I say I'm a musician, like when I was sitting in my father's church when I was three years old, I could already sight read. There's some part of me that's like, just thinks that music is this profoundly sacred language. And so I want the music to mean something outside of the words. I think that So often what we think of as protest songs are really just artists or writers just responding to their world. Like if you're going to take the time to write something down, chances are you're fairly introspective and you're thinking about stuff all the time. Like, are you thinking about your own pain? Are you thinking about somebody else's? You know, you're kind of existential, whether you're nonsensical about it or whether you're like really tied to the human condition kind of doesn't matter as a writer or a musician. You're responding to your world. And so sometimes you report on that world and you say things that other people don't want you to say. And then other people might call that a protest song when in fact, you're just delivering things as you see it. Now, I think it might become process material if it taps into the zeitgeist somehow. And if people find themselves in what you have to say and they find themselves kind of unsettled about what they see, they can do something with it. Sometimes if we don't, think of the music first, if we don't try to like kind of get in that mysterious space with the music, then it can just sort of sound pedantic and heavy handed and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Of course, all that's subjective too. People think I'm heavy handed when I think I'm just like sweetness and light, you know? (laughs) Rod, where are you starting with this? Well, I think that there's such a wide range, you know, 
A protest song can be simply a narrative, a straight narrative, like, say, Woody Guthrie's 1913 Massacre. He's just telling the story. He's not telling you how you're supposed to feel about it. But the story is so powerful that it makes you respond in a way that a protest song makes you respond. It really makes you think about the story and and follow it. And then there's all the way to fuck the police. That is a protest song. Like, there's no denying. That's not a narrative. They are protesting. But I also think that there's a magic spot somewhere in the middle where you're telling a narrative and you're telling a story and you're making people respond in the way that you want them to respond. You're making them think. It's funny. I don't think it's evergreen. From like the early 60s or maybe even the late 50s through the mid 70s, there was this kind of magic time period where it worked somehow in pop music. I mean, you had real hit songs that were protest songs. You know, you had Ohio by CSNY and Signs, Signs Everywhere, the Signs of Blocking Off the Scenery, Breaking My Mind. You know, that was a pure pop song. Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, and Stevie Wonder's Living for the City. And it worked during that time for some reason. There seemed to be a time where it shifted and it doesn't work anymore in pop music. Maybe it's the way pop music is made or the sound of pop music. I don't know. It works with hip hop and it works with the rappers. But it seems to me when strictly pop and rock music, it doesn't work that well. There's also a little moment in the punk movement where it seemed to work. But right now, it's very easy to sound pedantic is the perfect word that Lily used. It's easy to sound didactic and pedantic. And I think that's how it comes off to a lot of people nowadays. Yeah, I noticed American Idiot, Green Day, one of the only sort of recent, 2004, that was on all these lists. Super polarizing. Some are putting it in like the best and some are putting it in the worst that it's just blah, blah, blah. People in America are stupid. Like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Do I need to sing about that? Is that a protest? Is that actionable? I don't... And like American Idiot is a perfect example of like, that song was just good. The vocal delivery, the lyric is actually good. The form of the song is actually good. And Green Day certainly took a lot of hits for being too good to be a punk band. But I think every musical genre grows up. That's a perfect example of a song that to me works without knowing that it's a protest song at all. And then you dig in the lyric and you dig into the intention and you're like, oh, that's even more fun. Certainly. And also the controversial nature of protest songs in general and how they do split along political lines and create polemics and polarities that kind of gives them their gravitas because it does speak on topics that are creating conflict and divisiveness between institutions and individuals, etc. So. Yeah, I mean, if someone releases a song that everyone loves, that's not saying anything, you know, that's what pop music has been formulaically creating. But I guess I would say that protest music, it speaks to the the age that it's written in, but it also lingers um, and can refer to to, as historical record to harken back to moments when divisiveness and protestation and all that stuff are kind of at a fever pitch. To respond to what Rod said about whether or not modern non-rap related protest music is effective or not, it's, it's interesting to consider that the sign of the times, I think really, the zeitgeist, as Lily said, um, I think really is what draws musicians into the fray to start speaking on subjects that have that protest sensibility. And also with hip hop, with the way society is trying to cancel and censor, hip hop is never 
taken that seriously. They've always stuck their nose up at those that try to censor and, you know, say to hell with your censorship. We speak what we speak and there is no canceling. So that may be why hip hop has more resilience and perhaps more effectiveness aside from some of the mechanical stuff where, I mean, you can fit more language in per song. So you can say ostensibly more um, with more words, not to say that quantity is better than quality, but it does have that kind of platform. As far as protest music in general, I mean, music is the expression of impassioned beings who are impassioned about something. And if something is going on that elicits your grievance, you know, musicians then would naturally respond. So, you know, something like the 60s happens, the anti-war movements create this whole kind of army of protest. So I think it's a to and fro, it's a push and pull. You can't just spawn protest out of your own personal grievance and expect it to go viral. It has to connect to something that's operating at a larger, a more ubiquitous level. I wonder about this claim that hip-hop is more effective at it. I do agree that hip-hop is a stronger platform to voice grievance, but in terms of being effective at impacting change, I'm not sure that's the case because where I live, if I show up to a festival, I get asked, so what are you going to play here? Because we don't like the hip-hop. We don't like the rap. They just assume that that's what I do, even if I show up with a bluegrass band. And so for me, it seems like while hip hop artists are incredibly present to and articulate about things that warrant true grievance, I'm not sure it impacts the society at large because so many people are so quick to just reject it offhand. Sure. Um, Ultimately, I agree, too. I mean, the efficaciousness is a kind of a separate prong because I think the person protesting is going to protest whether it's effective or not, right, because of the causes sufficient to elicit that kind of conviction. It's when everyone else is also convicted that can spawn. I don't think hip hop has any leverage over any other genre necessarily, just to clarify. But yeah, ultimately, I agree. Well, I do think that there have been artists and songs that did reach across the aisle and sort of impact people's ability to think differently. I do think that's possible. I just think that even though hip hop is the dominant pop language right now, we're still, as a society at large, so intimidated by it. And I want to go back to something you said, Rod. I am not convinced that Fuck the Police is a straight up protest song. I think that's just a literal, this is what I'm thinking. And some people will experience one person's literal thoughts as, oh, you're protesting against something. But really, when I look at that lyric, it's an incredibly painful, intimate testimony to the internal rage. Like, what you're being impacted by on a daily basis. Like, I can't take this. When we assign the label protest to something that's actually a statement of vulnerability, maybe masked through like toxic masculinity, whatever, but still it's actually a statement of vulnerability and pain. I think when we take that part out of the story, for me, it becomes less penetrating, but that that might just be me. I would argue back Against that a little bit, if Fuck the Police isn't a protest song, what is a protest song? I mean, that is the pro, I mean, that is the protest. By saying that, I'm not lessening the power of that song. I'm not excluding the vulnerability of it and I'm not lessening the voice of it by calling it a protest song. I'm just saying if, if that's not a protest song, I don't, I don't know what is. Well, you're speaking to somebody who's very skeptical of the label protest song in general. I think we have message songs. I think we have diary songs. I think all of this stuff gets interpreted differently. And that's a great question. If Fuck the Police is not a protest song, what is? I'm going to stew on that. 
Can I pile on that? So like Power to the People by John Lennon, that is officially a protest song. And that's where it starts to feel less authentic to me, because I agree, Lily, with your sort of analysis of what music is for. It's just it's self-expression. It's whatever is really paining you. And it could be that some people are in the midst of a situation where they're suffering some identifiable injustice. And so what is personal is political. It's just that for why signs, signs, everywhere signs, I put on that list as something that led to the cynicism about this because I feel whatever, I don't actually know anything about the group that produced that. Maybe they were very sincere people. But to me, 15, 20 years later, you know, when I was hearing it after it came out, it just sounded like inauthentic suburban whining. And that is how I interpreted a lot of the political activity as a young person of my peers, that a lot of the people who were super political that it was kind of like being a super fan of a sports team or something, like you're identifying with something that you don't actually have any power over. You're falling in with a trend. You're conforming. This is not an honest thing. My co-band leader in my college band said, I would rather write about a pimple on my ass than about the state of the world today because we just felt like, what the hell do we know about the state of the world today? What power do we actually have to change it? We just had very low efficacy. And so to be honest about our sentiments, like is just to sort of steer clear of the political or just make it self-consciously a whine about, I don't want to have to get a job and live in a stultifying society. Like that's how it personally affects me. But that's a pretty immature I'm finding. I also like Rod's more literary approach to like, I'm going to write from the point of view of these other people that he writes these little like short stories about Rust Belt people that are put upon and, you know, make the political personal just through literary means. It kind of brings to the forefront a lot of like problems as far as like interpreting the purpose of music and the purpose of artists and poets and things of that nature to speak. Because I mean, there's a distinction that that you're pointing out between almost being commissioned to respond to a political event as a musician, to create a song, to embody the grievance of a collective and that's where it seems more like a contrivance then you have something like fuck the police which very much is a response to existential situations on the ground that once encapsulated in music form blows up because it turns out a lot of other people are having similar experiences and that in and of itself could ignite something like protest or at least um, protest like thinking in the populace uh, when a musician makes real something that no one else really has been able to encapsulate in language. So that distinction is important. And I think that like, like the whole, when the, when the pandemic started and all the celebrities got on their webcams and started singing Imagine and stuff, like you, you get a sense that it's like, this is the most contrived. It'd be like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and make a whole album right now on the war in Ukraine or something like that. Like responding directly to something so as to capitalize on it, which is effectively what I think a lot of people probably do as, as an opportunity. You have that angle. Then you have the angle of, well, I'm a poet. This is something that's ruminating, culminating, and then all of a sudden something magical may emerge, which could have more of an effect. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in making those distinctions. I know there is an artist named Chris Matthews who's writing these days, used to be based out of D.C. I think she recently moved to Nashville. And she's a folk artist, C-R-Y-S Matthews, who writes the kind of songs that in this conversation we might put in that category of like being too specific. I happen to know that Chris would rather be writing mainstream country songs, you know, for big country artists. 
But instead, she's right now incredibly skilled at writing direct protest songs that people in her audience, like her audiences, really, really respond to her voice. And and now I do understand that she's mostly performing for liberals who want want to figure out what to do. What can they do? You know, and she'll tackle kind of any category. I know recently she did a song about the Texas abortion laws. And, you know, it's like, I think, well, how would I write an abortion song? That's way over my head. And yet she manages to do it skillfully and empowers the people that listen to her to take action. And I'm like, wow, to me, in this day and age, maybe in ever, that just seems magical. Whereas I find myself in that second category that you just named, Tyler, where it's sort of like, I just ruminate on these feelings and maybe something comes out and maybe I'll reference something specific, but I make the music feel like how I'm feeling. And I end up speaking to things that are relevant to me that I'm, that I might be passionate about or that I'm grappling with. And then that later gets dubbed as protest music or as activist music. And I think I consider myself to be a humanist. Like I'm on everybody's team. I'm like, y'all, we got to rise, you know, and even me just saying that that's a protest statement, you know, the only thing I'll say in brief is like with any artist creation, once it's out there, the folks that hear it can, can frame it and call it and label it and categorize it and genreify it. Um, and they will, right? So um, that's just the the nature of being an artist. Once it's out there, it's made use of, right? It's an object now. It's no longer just a conception. I would agree with that, Tyler. And there's there's a great example in Springsteen's Born in the USA. It actually proves your point because he released that. It was it was a huge hit. I mean, we're using the term protest song. So loosely, semantics aside, it's a protest song about how Vietnam vets were being treated back in the States when they came back to the States. And so many people took it as a nationalistic anthem. Ronald Reagan tried to take the song and use it as a as part of his campaign, Born in the USA. And there are still, to this day, people who think that it's a nationalist cheer anthem when it's exactly the opposite. I was really late posting things to the document, but I put two versions in there and you can hear the difference, you know, because they did it as this big rock song where you can hear born in the usa you know you can you can hear that sort of element of it obviously i always bothered springsteen you know that people misunderstood the song but it goes right to your point you know once you put it out there people are going to do with it what they will and uh, in later years in the last well i don't know the last 20 years he turned it into a, a blues you know a 12 string acoustic blues and that's how he plays it now and there's no mistaking there's no mistaking what the song means now when you hear it now in that form so it's interesting when it goes wrong when you musically putting something in a setting that doesn't jive with what you're saying and i guess neil young can't do that with keep on rocking in the free world you can't make a a non-rock song out of that that wouldn't it wouldn't make any sense another thing that strikes me is it it's almost like if looking at music through the frame of you know of, of having some kind of social import or purpose it's almost like there's a polemic that positions the artist against whatever established institution is out there that is attempting to frame whatever narrative might be there. So, if you know, for example, in, in Russia, they're using popular musicians out there to spread propaganda. So there's a co-opting or coercive nature to artists having their creations used for certain purposes. That 
maybe where where the point lies almost the thread is through the whole individual versus the institution speaking out against something that's greater than yourself that you wouldn't have the power to overturn except for the fact that if your message is sufficiently uh, motivating or encouraging to a populace right then you have grassroots movements and revolutions and things like that that can occur so governments will always try to leverage their artists for propagandistic purposes and that's can be pretty concerning too with the whole born in the USA thing. There are many examples of that, I'm sure. Oh yeah, it seems like it happens all the time. I think that people do co-opt. That is something they do. But I think you just started talking. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember when they did that to Shostakovich back in the day. I remember that. You know, it's like the state trying to to make the art mean what they want it to mean. But I think underneath all of that. There is the artist's journey, like the creative mind. I think of it as being the thread that's loose that kind of messes up the tapestry enough for something new to come in. It's like, you know, when it comes to evolution, it's like, let's make a mistake and see what happens. You know, let's rough this up a bit and see if we can push something forward. And so it's a necessary thread when it comes to the evolutionary process, I think. And so, yeah, I guess it does position those who are creatively minded as being oppositional to a quote unquote status quo. I think that as a person who identifies as an artist, I tend to want to push back on people perceiving me as being oppositional when I could just be like, oh, you've been playing with A, but there are like 25 other letters in the alphabet. And I could, you know, I might be singing about an X or a Y, but it's still just letters in the alphabet. I think with that as my mindset, it allows me to be a little bit more mindful about when I do want to be absolutely oppositional. It's like the hard no here. I find myself like being black, Southern, you know, having been raised poor, like woman, you know, queer, all of these things. I'm always singing about letters that are, you know, not the first letter in the alphabet. You know, I'm like, because that's my whole world. And I don't think that it helps me as a human to perceive my world as being in opposition to reality. You know, I'm trying to align myself with reality. It's almost as if the inherent nature of the artist is to extrapolate and extract truths that aren't apparent or known or understood. And that sometimes does position one against the norms of status quo, which then leads to feeling that revolutionary fervor and wanting to speak out and and maybe bring about activism if that's what you want to do as a musician. But that's why Plato wanted to get rid of the poets, right? You can have a well-controlled state with a bunch of radicals out there speaking their discontent. Let's stop for a quick sponsor message. No one knows what you're looking for in a doctor better than you, and no one's better at giving you the tools to find the perfect doctor than ZocDoc. The people who created ZocDoc found the major pain points in healthcare, and they made booking a great doctor surprisingly pain-free. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. So I use this on mobile. I use this on my desktop. You set it up so it's filtered, so it's only finding things relevant to your insurance, and you specify what kind of doctor you're looking for. Could be an eye doctor, could be a therapist, could be a person to look at that gross growth on your neck, a GP, anything. So you can do a search, you can see reviews by actual people on these doctors, and you can book something right there in the app. Many of these doctors are free as soon as today. You could book an in-person visit, you could book a remote visit, a very useful, easy-to-use app. 
Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash PMP. ZocDoc.com slash PMP. So I think I was hinting about this before, but let me just straight out ask Rod that in constructing these from the point of view of uh, oppressed Rust Belt folks, you know, out of a job or whatever, like, is this purely a literary exercise or is this a bit of, is there some political motivation with that? I don't have a large enough audience that I would say that the politics of those songs are really at the forefront of my mind. You know, I'm well aware that I have a very small, very loyal audience. But I don't run away from the stories that I think are poignant and carry weight. So I wouldn't say there's intent there. I would say that I'm I'm aware of it, but I wouldn't say that there's intent there. I know that for me as a songwriter, the most powerful, okay, we're, we're talking protest songs, so I'm just going to use that term very loosely. The protest songs that made the biggest impact on me were the songs that were narratives that told a story that made me see things, that revealed something to me, that made me see the world in a certain way, made me see the world more gently or see other people's vulnerabilities or see um, how other people were done wrong. The songs that really moved me to think about this stuff were songs that were stories, that were narratives, you know. So coming right out and sort of I wouldn't say that I write protest songs. What did Dylan call them? Finger-pointing songs. (laughs) I'm circling back a bit, but what I find really interesting is what happened that those songs are not part of popular, aside from the hip-hop and rap world, where they, I agree, I mean, they're speaking to mostly to the people who are experiencing those, having those experiences as well. But where is it in popular culture? What happened where it doesn't work anymore? Like right now, what's a protest song that's a, that's a huge song? I can't think of one. Let me read you a quote here, and you can guess who it's by, and that'll tell why it's still relevant now. Given the tone of this, it is not by who you think. The beauty of literature, poetry, and music is that they leave room for the audience to put its own imagination, experiences, and dreams into the words. The examples I cited earlier showed clear evidence of his music being completely misinterpreted and unfairly judged by supposedly well-informed adults. We cannot allow this to continue. That is Dee Snyder, author of uh, We're Not Gonna Take It. And this is this article about this talks about how this is actually being used in Ukraine right now, that it is an all-purpose. And the thing he was objecting to, apparently, it was actually written in the first place about the attacks in the 80s by like Tipper Gore and stuff on musicians freedom of speech but it is an all-purpose it's such a vague song that it was used by all sorts of right-wing causes and you know you could see this i don't know if it came up on january 6th but they definitely could have used that that it is written as something for people to chant there is something about popular culture we talked about this in the early origins of this podcast that the more popular the more accessible things become the more homogenized and it's not necessarily quality reduction. I mean, there's high quality music being written in the pop world, but there's a almost a homogenization of sensibilities. So eventually the populace is going to be responding to similar things and perhaps... Pop music is more algorithmic than mysterious these days. And I think we're losing a lot. Like my cynical response to the question, is anything working in pop music these days? You know, and I, that's too reductionist. For example, we talked about in our prep document 
the song We Are the World as being, you know, one of these message songs, you know, that was designed to affect change and blah, blah, blah. Literally um, to course, raise money. Yeah. To, yeah. To raise money. Exactly. And, you know, we put that kind of in contrast to do they know it's Christmas time at all? And yeah, it gets scary. But I saw a video of the original production and then a 25 year anniversary production that was done to raise money for Haiti. And I think the problems that you might be hinting at, Rod, like showed up in this second production. You know, it's like the first production Every single voice was like so authentic and speaking from their souls. And like everybody was so different. You had Ray Charles versus Willie Nelson versus James Ingram and Michael Jackson. I mean, you just had Bruce Springsteen and Cindy Lauper. You just, you had all of these weird voices and interpreting their lyric to make it match their bones, to make it match their resonating chambers, right? And so you could feel everything so completely. And then you fast forward 25 years and you have A-list stars again singing the song, trying to be a postcard of the person who sang it before. And it fell flat. It didn't, for me personally, you know, I'm such a snob. I'm sorry, y'all. Um, but it just, even though they had these this amazing talent, it didn't have the same penetrating resonance that this earlier, very sentimental, very straightforward pop song. Now, it had had a melody, which is great. It had chord changes, which I love. You know, it had things that made it music. But when you fast forward 25 years, what it was lacking was the authenticity and delivery. And I find that to be a broad stroke deterrence for me enjoying pop music these days. So this is really, I've never thought about it quite that way. I wonder if those things are connected. You know, I wonder if, you know, when, when Crosby stills Nash and Young did Ohio, there was no mistaking from the very first note who that was. And that kind of is sort of what you're pointing at with the original version of, of that song is that each of those individuals sang one line and you knew exactly who it was it, with each person. And when I turn on the radio today, particularly with the pop or pop country stations, I literally cannot tell the difference between the singers. I can't tell who is who until they, you know, stick an old George Jones song in there. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, yeah, there's, there's George Jones. I can, you know, I recognize that. I wonder if there's a connection there. Potentially the the American idolization of pop music that like you actually have to have a good, a strong, a powerful voice. And, you know, if you're using appropriate vocal technique, those are actually going to kind of converge in some ways towards some of the things that Lily was pointing out about We Are the World are the things that turned me off of it at the time that I felt like it was a cheese fest and that having Bob Dylan come in and or somebody else with their own distinct well, that's your choice. But, you know, with this, it seemed discordant to me. It seemed out of, but I see the charm of that. And I could see why I think that in terms of what might work still in pop music today. So because I have a daughter, I listen to way more Taylor Swift than I should have. And she is one of those people that at least, and I think, uh, Olivia Rodrigo, the, there's a new, there's, there's some other folks that are these very relatable, expressive, angsty teen, voice like that is still the appeal that 
the classic singer songwriter had, as opposed to like a pop, you know, more like a 60s crooner or something. That's kind of what this American idolization, as I call it, of vocals has given us is maybe a disconnect between people who are primarily writers and maybe their voice sort of sucks and producing their personality and putting that out in the world, as opposed to now, if you do that, in fact, I've read it's sort of considered being a slacker and maybe it's white privilege that I could feel with my shitty voice that I could just half-ass something, you know, with my, and that could relate to somebody, you know, these top drawer, objectively good singers. And like that for everybody to really compete to the highest level, that's what fairness is. And it actually leads, ironically enough, to a certain homogenization. And I say this, though, with Lily on, who has an amazing and super unique voice. (laughs) For starters, writers who may not have the best voices in the world have been killing it at being effective expressors. Like, I honestly personally would put Neil Young and and, um, Bob Dylan in that category, even though Bob Dylan sings beautifully. They both can sing beautifully, but they don't necessarily try to sing beautifully in order to express what they're trying to do. They sing authentically. And when Bob found that speak singing way to deliver a lyric, you know, he that he found that that was the most authentic way to express the lyric. And then we also had this tradition at the same time when that was going on, we had the tradition of somebody writing the song and then finding the amazing singer to take it over the top, like an Aretha Franklin natural woman or like, you know. And so that is another tradition in the kind of pop music arena. And so I don't think either one of those ways of going about things is bad or good. I think it's really great if you're Sam Cooke who can write a change is going to come and you can also deliver it yourself. I think that's amazing, but I don't think that's necessary. He could have handed that song to somebody else. What's happening now, which I find even more alarming, is that there are schools where folks are being trained up on how to sound like somebody else. And that's when they lose an exponential amount of the information that their body could otherwise have delivered. And yes, it's homogenizing and it's homogenizing on purpose because what we want now is interchangeable music. One of the reasons is because like when it comes to licensing a song, you want to be able to swap out the big budget for the low budget real easily. And so you get an artist you've never heard of who sounds exactly like the artist you have heard of. You swap it out and you save yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars on that licensing opportunity. And so that's one of the things going on. But there are any number of other reasons. And I think that, you know, it's like trying to make Maria Kala sound like Taylor Swift. To reframe it back to the the nature of protest and artists using their voices to try to either purposefully or not purposefully elicit some sort of change. The incentive structures for pop musicians now are based wholly around the capitalist regime that, you know, everything that I output should yield me some sort of monetary return. And if it doesn't, society is not looking at me as effective or successful. So that's one angle of it. It seems to me that is in direct conflict with what a society would need to spawn generations of artists that have the penchant to protest and speak emotionally and authentically, right? That it removes the authenticity. And I'm, you know, I'm no Marxist, but there are truths about the detachment from the product when doing the thing for other ends that don't serve the end in itself. So doing music for the sake of being authentic and emotive and speaking from the heart, sometimes that goes a long way and people respond favorably to that authenticity, which 
may be the result of having activist movements spawn up around a truly, and you, know, you hit that, that critical mass when you get a Bob Dylan who has all the qualities and the ability to speak to a lot of people at the same time and elicit that kind of response. It's almost as that homogenization over time ends up, without trying to be too general, sapping the authenticity is such a loaded word, but sapping those legitimate voices over time, it becomes diluted and formulaic. And then you have an apparatus that is not able to protest anything, right? Because they're all speaking the same messages for the same return. I think that has a lot to do with it. And Tyler, you bring up a really good point there, because part of why that's happening, you know, current protest songs might fall flat or feel performative and, you know, just not have the same impact is because the artist is now required to monetize their music, where it used to be that the artist could make the music And if they managed to get a label, then the label would be required to monetize it. Now, that meant that money never came back to the artist often, but at least it was somebody else's job to think about the money. But now the artist is like, it's their job to think about the money. And so they're like, oh, how can I capitalize on this moment? How can I capitalize on this moment? And it's like, whoa, hold up. You know, it really does shift your lens around some things. And like one of the things I love about New Orleans is that there's so many artists here who are still tapped into just that kind of fundamental way of being. And unfortunately, that means that there's not a lot of money here. There's not a lot of industry here. But what it does mean is that when a person speaks, it still tends to feel that authentic extra resonance. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, every musician I knew around here, whether they were a singer or a wind player or whatever, couldn't play. Because they were like, my body doesn't know what to say to this. This is so far outside of the realm of my understanding. And so they didn't write a bunch of quarantine songs. They hung back. They waited until the wind came back, you know, and then they played again. And, you know, I think that I personally would like love to see a little bit more about that, like hang back and get a wider lens and see what you can say from a wider lens and see if that would make it feel potent again. Yeah, the need to respond to what's hot because you know it's going to make you a bunch of money. That's it sucks. It's it's funny that you invert the uh, the whole like it used to be the case that people had the sense that if you sign to a record label, you're kind of relinquishing your rights as an artist. But what you said is very important. Like it actually offloads a lot of that having to focus on the materials and the resources, so you can't actually focus on the thing. But then of course you end up with A and R agendas and record labels having their own political, you know, whatever. So and we haven't talked about the ruination of two classic rock legends. Van Morrison and Eric Clapton by protest music during the pandemic, which they clearly didn't write as a cash grab. It's something that they felt strongly about, but just revealed that they're old cranks and we shouldn't have been listening to them. Let's kind of go around and do a final sort of recommendation or final point. Is there some particular song that you were thinking of in preparing for this that would be illustrative of a point that has not yet been made or something like that? Not really. I mean, Born in the USA, uh, I think, is a really fascinating example of how a protest song can go wrong. This conversation really, really has me thinking why it is what's happened in our culture, what's shifted in our culture where a protest song doesn't work anymore. And it used to work. I think of like, go back to Ohio by CSNY, and you think, Tin Soldiers and Nixon's coming, right? When I hear that on the radio... I don't feel any embarrassment at all, but you could not write, you could not have a hit song that talked about here comes Donald Trump 
it wouldn't work. And I don't really know why. There's something has happened in the culture. It might have to do with the homogenization that Tyler and Lily were talking about. But something has changed where it just doesn't have the same acceptance, sort of, of a person's individual voice. It seems to me, unless, you know, you're in the pop world and you're Taylor Swift, who is great at what she does. But she basically just writes songs about her breakups, you know, about how badly she was treated. And it's so controversial. But now she's happy, so she doesn't get to do that anymore. <laughs> I know. The protest songs now are the defiant happiness is the you know, protest. Now, I'm happy. I'm a queen. I feel like there was a, an era of protest in the early 80s or that, you know, a strain of I'm protesting against the gravity and seriousness that all, all of you take all this stuff and. Party, 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 a celebrate good times could be, in fact, be a protest song and not a complete sellout. There's probably a better example <laughs> of that. I mean, non-participation in a regime, whatever, in whatever capacity could be looked at as protest. So a boycott an approach to something. But. I got the perfect one for you, Mark. Fight for your right to party by the Beastie Boys. That's <laughs> as a protest. That's a protest song. <laughs> I think that. Part of what's happening here is the speed at which information is delivered and consumed. And I think that it's almost impossible to like drop in and get that extra mysterious information about things when you're devouring content all day long. I think that one song that is interesting to me that changed meaning over time was Anais Mitchell's Why We Build the Wall. I don't know if she wrote it as a protest song, but it was a song sung by Hades in her folk opera, Hades Town. And Hades is convincing the people that they should build their own wall. And he says, this is why we do it. And at the time, we just thought it, my band, we just thought it was gritty and edgy and you know, we were living here in a party town and we're like, we're going to sing this song because nobody here is going to sing this gritty, edgy, dark song about building your own wall. And then you fast forward 10 years and you have this dude who's like running the country and is like literally building a wall. And I remember the first day I played that tune after Trump was elected and I was like, holy crap, I am now a protest artist. <laughs> like I was like, because the song changed not only by the times changing, but also by who was singing it and how I sing it. Um, if I sing it like a gospel anthem, then now we're in the streets. You know, now it's a whole different context. Everything around the song changed. And so this is to say that not all protest songs have to be conceived as such. Time can reveal the other dimensions there. And I think that that's an appropriate amount of time. Like I think it took 10 years for that which was being, in this case, that which was being anticipated to become literal. But I think in that 10 years, all this extra information came attached to that narrative. So it's a fight with time sometimes. Tyler, did you have one from your list you wanted to leave us with as a recommendation? Yeah, so there's a project that Raucous Records, so Raucous had its fallout after a lot of years of success early on. Um, a lot of the underground was able to actually platform through Raucous Records into that pre-mainstream light underground where popularity was rising, yet they were still more or less underground rappers. Then Amadou Diallo gets shot and they release a, a five-song project 
with probably 35 rappers on it, responding directly to that incident and police brutality in general. And the only reason I find this to be a perfect example, and I kind of piggybacks on what Lily was just saying, this was written back when it was done. Those issues haven't been resolved, right? So it's still as relevant now as it was then. And what I find both confusing about all of it and inspiring, I guess, is that when a specific instance can rally that kind of response, and then it has all the other attached positive benefits where the proceeds go to certain charities and all that stuff, that's inherently a good thing. While it might be somewhat contrived, right? It's, it's in direct response. What's great about underground hip-hop and lyrical hip-hop in general that, that doesn't adhere to mainstream formulaic standards is that you have individual poets with their own unique voices, similar to what we were talking about before. It's kind of anti-homogenization. You have all these different cadences and rhyme styles and flow and just all the deviation. And yet they're all culminating you know, through this particular event. So it's called Hip Hop for Respect. It's a five-track CD. Please listen to it, uh, even if you're not necessarily a hip hop fan, because it has that, you get that sense that they were all kind of responding collectively to this hypercharged situation where Diallo gets shot, I think, 41 times or something. Now, fast forward to 20. 2018, 2019, you're seeing police brutality become the hot button issue that it should be, kind of reemerging as an issue of the zeitgeist. So definitely check that out. It's fantastic. And to speak to my original point, Tyler, the music on that EP kicks. It kicks and you can feel them all the way through. You can feel every artist all the way through and the production has heat, you know. I'm 36. So that came out when I was a sophomore in high school or a freshman in high school. And when I heard it, I didn't really know what I was experiencing, but it was something like euphoria because I had just gotten into rap. I would had my first couple albums already recorded. I was learning. I was gaining skill, but I didn't have my feet underneath me yet. You know, I was still very wet behind the ears. I didn't know what I was doing, really. I hear something like this and you have so many different artists and so many different voices. Yeah, it resonated with me in a lot of ways this was one of those springboard projects that launched my motivations to continue doing music. So not only did it have an impact widely, it had an impact specifically. And I think if a protest song is to be effective in general, it should hit the individual right in the heart, but it should hit a lot of individuals right in the heart, right? Sufficient enough to gather and allow a greater voice to be heard as a conduit or as a, the artist as the champion for a cause. We need champions. We, we've always had champions. We have warriors that go to war. We have scientists. We have these elite representatives of the species that go out and do the things that need to be done. I think musicians and poets are, in large part, the champions of the need for grassroots speaking out against what is an encroaching authoritarianism. I think the power of a good song that directs the people is that it makes the individuals receiving the song the champion. And it lets them know that they're not alone. Jimi Hendrix kind of believed in like this quantum coherence that can happen when people are receiving this like song information together. If you can direct that coherence, embolden the individual, empower that individual to put one foot in front of the other um, in the name of what they believe in, that's where the power lives. Yeah. Suffice it to say that my teenage complete cynicism about this has dulled as I've gotten older and not so self-consumed and like, well, if I don't have to write, I don't have so much personal angst that's bubbling up, then why not write something political? It just has left me more empathetic and open to whether they be literary forays or just anything else where you're using music to do something else besides merely express your pain, which in the case of a protest song, if you 
just had your kids killed in the raids in Ukraine, like, okay, maybe you'd write a tears in heaven just to say something nice about Eric Clapton since I just said something mean about that. You know, that that's a real authentic thing for their situation. But you can also, whatever, if you want to comment on something, go right ahead. The ones that I personally like better are the ones that have some kind of fun with it. But of course, that's not appropriate for all topics. But Gallo's humor even for the worst things, even if I was like in a situation, you know, that I was in Ukraine right now and I was going to write about it, I would probably write about it not directly as like a tears in heaven kind of this is the tragedy and I'm going to write a drama, but like write some like this is fucked up. That is more my way of reacting to tragedy. Indeed. Comedy is a direct reaction to tragedy, I think, in general. All right. Thanks so much to all of you. Uh, Rod, do you have anything to plug? It's an interesting uh, thing. that I made a record last year of all the songs that I've co-written with my longtime co-writer Slade Cleaves. And it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about protest songs, but it also gets into activism. And, you know, like I decided to, I got about 150 copies left and it's quite an expensive CD because it's a double CD and it comes with a book. And uh, I posted on Facebook that half of the proceeds are going to go to this group in Maine that's going over to the Ukraine to be sort of first line medical help to get people to actual proper help. And I suppose that's a political move on my own part. I didn't really think of it like that, but (laughs) I'm using non-political music to make my own political uh, endeavor. All right. And I see you have a new album about to come out. The new album is called Paper Hearts and Broken Arrows, and I think it's one of the better ones. <laughs> you never know until a few years later, so we'll see. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. It brought up more questions for me and made me think more than I had thought about this particular subject. Lily, is there anything since I just had Lily on Nakedly Examined Music within the last six months? I did release a cover of Joni Mitchell's River in, in the, since that record. But, you know, you invoked D. Snyder earlier in the conversation. And are you familiar with what he's doing now no. um, with the U- Ukraine project? It's called WorldUnited.Live. And essentially, he's getting actors, musicians, you know, and, and just folks who are down with the cause to make videos where they speak from the heart about anything that they have in relation to Russia or Ukraine, and then read some approved, like verified information, you know, to try to sort of combat the Russian disinformation campaign that's going on. And it's being delivered like directly to Russian citizens. And there's an Arnold Schwarzenegger one that went viral. Um, I just saw that Patton Oswald added a video. And it's something that I have gotten kind of tied into through another friend of mine. And so I would encourage everybody to look up worldunited.live and see if you can share some of those videos, if any of them hit home with you. Other than that, I'm on the road this year. I'm doing a lot of traveling. I'm headed to the Northeast next week and a couple more times this year doing some shows with Jill Sobel and Carsey Blanton. And so Jill, Jill would, being another great current protest songwriter. Very fun amen. protest songs. Best not fucking Texas. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what's going on for me right now and um, all that information's on my website folkrockdiva.com alright thank you so much to all of you so long listeners goodbye 
Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.